Well, good evening. I'm glad you guys are here. Just kind of make your way in, pretty casual. Come in, find a seat. We're uh, going to launch into a yet another topic tonight. These are actually going to get more interesting as we go. I know that's not the way you're supposed to organize a series, but now that we've laid a little groundwork, I think they're going to get more interesting. Let me say a prayer for us and we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for this evening. We're grateful that we can all be here together to reason together. Pray that your word would inform our thinking and that together as a community, we might be about your business in this world. I pray for the leaders of our country, that you would turn their hearts toward you, that you would encourage those who seek to follow you, and Father, that your will would be done in all things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've been with us, you know, if you text your questions during class to this number, we try to answer as many as we can. So just text your questions in. We are talking about politics particularly with the point of view of Christians in the public square and how should Christians engage the public square. The why we're talking about this is as we looked in our first lesson at the Bible, does not really support the idea of Christians divorcing themselves from public issues. And so we are going to confront the world, we're gonna engage the world for Christ. Why are we doing it now? Because I think people are very open to these kinds of topics. These are the things, these are the topics we'll be doing in our series, are the kinds of things that we're engaging. Everyone in America is engaging, actually around the world, are engaging these topics. So it's very timely to talk about these things. And for us in particular, this is a unique election. I've mentioned this before, <laughs> competitive to the end, but... This is an unusual election, I think you'd have to admit. There have been some sea changes in American politics in both of the major parties. Now, I realize that there are some other parties, but you've got the uh, Libertarians currently polling at about 7%, and I believe the latest poll I saw on the Green Party was maybe 3%. So we're going to focus our attention on the two major parties in America, but both of them have undergone really seismic changes that are likely to affect their policies long term. The latest Rasmussen poll, by the way, shows that only, and this is kind of remarkable too, kind of goes along with these unfavorability ratings, only 28% of Americans believe that our country is on the right track. I mean, if you stop and think about that for a moment, that's a remarkable amount of pessimism and it cuts across ideological boundaries. It's not like one party says, hey, we think everything's going the right way and another party says no. This cuts across ideological and party boundaries. So there's a mood in America that there are things that need to be fixed. And every one of the issues we're gonna talk about are things that people have an opinion about needing to be fixed. The way we're going to approach this is we want to take a look at the biblical ideas that will inform our thinking in the public square. But sometimes those secular public ideas come into the church. I'm going to show you a couple of quotes, and I agree with both of these quotes. This is Tim Keller making the observation. He pastors a large church in New York City. He says, a large number of young evangelicals believe that their churches have become captured by the right, just like many mainline churches have become captured by the left, talking about political ideologies. And I think there's some truth in that, is that if we aren't careful, we can repeat the mistakes that happened several decades ago where certain mainline denominations basically conflated, put together, 
their faith and a certain political ideology. At that time, it was traditional liberalism. We'll talk about that. It'll come into play in a few of our topics about what is actually liberalism and how has it morphed into what we see today. But there's also concern that amongst evangelicals that now the same thing could be happening with a more conservative or typically what you think of as a right-leaning ideology is that we begin to conflate or make our faith and our political ideology too close together. And then the question becomes, which is informing which? And the purpose of our series is to hopefully have the Bible informing us in the public square. This, a little bit complicated, but basically I really like this observation. He says, if you look back in our attempt to control our society, because Christians have over the past 50 years or so particularly attempted to influence our society, Christians have too readily accepted liberalism as a social strategy appropriate to the Christian story, meaning traditional liberal ideas have seemed to be the vehicle for many churches to communicate the Christian story. Liberalism in its many forms presupposes that a society can be organized without any narrative that's commonly held to be true. Basically what this part is saying is the fundamental tenet of liberalism is the sovereignty of the individual. Now that plays itself out in a lot of different ways, but that individual preference, in other words, individuals are king. My choices should rule. My life should be the sum total of my choices. And sometimes that's taken with the God's, uh, God has put a premium on the value of humanity. I mean, we are literally imbued with God's image. It was easy sometimes to put those two things together. So on both sides of this, there's a temptation for our faith to be morphed into a political ideology. And what we'd like to do is have our political ideology shaped by our faith. And so that's what we are about. One of the disturbing trends, LifeWay Research, uh, which is a Christian organization, LifeWay, you may know, uh, know of them, did a study last year in 2015, and they were talking specifically about immigration. The statistic I'm going to give you specifically about evangelical Christians' attitudes toward immigration. More than two out of three, their attitudes were shaped by cable news rather than by the Bible. And so I think it's a real temptation for us to have our thoughts shaped by secular forces rather than biblical forces. And that's what we want to do. We want to go to the Bible and say, how do we think biblically about these things? Well, I'd like to talk about immigration, but first I need to get through the political correctness of this. I don't know whether to refer to illegal immigrants or undocumented residents. In fact, I'm having a lot of trouble with political correctness in general. So here are just a few of my favorite euphemisms or different ways to say things that are more politically correct. I'm getting more and more fond of referring to myself as chronologically gifted rather than aging. I think that sounds a little bit better. We live in a time that more than ever in history is a politically correct environment. And I want to talk just briefly about this idea because I want you to understand what's happening underneath this. This reframing how we label things is a very insidious tactic and different ideologies use it, some better than others. Some are masters of this. 
But basically, political correctness is a way of redefining words in a way that is inherently persuasive of a particular point of view. You understand what I'm saying? For example, an illegal immigrant and an undocumented resident. The very labeling of that changes your perspective. In other words, it's an attempt to persuade you. That's at its mildest. Political correctness in, in language is also can be very coercive. When we get to the politics of gender, you're going to see political correctness move from an attempt to persuade you to an attempt to coerce you. And that's why I think, for example, Donald Trump's candidacy, he's played on this uh, great, and he's really struck a chord amongst at least some Americans, uh, a really a, a big flowering of a resentment of people realizing they're being manipulated by the framing of the words. And so the, the idea of political correctness, so I'm going to try to use terms that actually describe what something is. So please don't read into that, that I'm trying to be derisive or portraying a particular idea, I think language matters. And reframing language is an attempt to persuade or coerce us. So, so we got past that. I'm going to talk to you about legal immigrants and illegal immigrants. And then we're also going to talk about refugees a little bit in this session. So immigrants and refugees. I realize they're two slightly different things, but some of the biblical precepts apply to both. How you think about this subject... I'm going to suggest to you, let's talk about point of view for a moment. The way we think about the, the issues surrounding immigration and the issues surrounding refugees has a lot to do with when I say those words, do you think of this or do you think of this? You see what I'm getting at? Some of this we bring because of the way that we tend to frame it. It's not necessarily a bias. Both of these affect these issues of immigrants and refugees in one way or another. But the picture we bring to it can frame how we think about it. Not very many of us, not very many people, I would suggest in America at all, whatever side of these issues you may be on, would really have an issue with having that young boy come into your community and do something to help him. I doubt there are very many people who would invite the other guy to dinner, right? And so what image you have in your mind when you think about this really begins to frame it. So let's, let's try to talk about the reality of the situation, which encompasses both of these. Not in equal numbers, of course, but both of these are part of this discussion. So our point of view, we need to check our point of view at the door just a little bit and realize there's more going on here than just my fears that are in the back or my heart to help the, you know, the people that desperately need help. Those are both important. Security and compassion are both very important. But if we come into this discussion with just one of them, it's going to hugely bias where we end up. Second thing I just want to observe about this idea of refugees and immigration, there are two, sociologists like to talk about two different kinds of migrations. One of them is called push and one of them is called pull. So push migration is people fleeing something. In other words, Syrian refugees, that's push migration. In other words, they are fleeing violence or fleeing abject poverty. 
So there's something pushing them out. They didn't wake up one morning and say, gee, I no longer want to live in Syria. It's because of what's happening there. They're being pushed or compelled in some way or another. Pull migration is where people are pulled toward a better life in some way or another. In other words, there may not be a, a life-threatening problem, but I see a better life on the other side of the border, and I want to go to that. It's important to think about that a little bit because historically speaking, we have viewed those two different groups of migrants or immigrants a little bit differently. In other words, we have tended to lean more towards people fleeing violence and abject poverty and have put more controls on people who were simply seeking a better life. Not that I'm saying seeking a better life is a bad thing by any means, but we have treated those two a little bit differently. So this issue of immigration and refugees is a little bit nuanced. Okay? Well, let's jump in. What I'd like to do is just go through just a few key ideas. And they're intended to get us to think uh, and frame our thinking a little bit, hopefully from a biblical point of view. So let me start with this. The Bible teaches compassion for immigrants and refugees. This is just a foundational teaching, Old Testament, New Testament. The Bible contemplates and speaks to the idea of, you'll see it translated as aliens or sojourners. They typically, translators don't use the word immigrant, but that's, that's exactly what it is. So Leviticus, now we're back in the Law of Moses. Think traditional date, 1400 BC. So 3,400 years ago, this is the Bible saying, when an immigrant, an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you has to be treated like one of your native born. Love him as yourself because you were aliens in Egypt when you were enslaved in Egypt. If you remember the story of Israel, I am the Lord your God. And then here's another. Don't take advantage of a hired man who's poor and needy. Now, again, these passages aren't just talking about immigrants, but I wanted you to see that they do specifically mention it. So pay him his wages because he's poor, he's counting on it. Uh, or the alien living in one of your towns. The Bible recognizes that it's easy to exploit people who are aliens. In other words, people who are not part of the mainstream culture. It's easy to exploit the widows and orphans and poor. You'll see this in a lot of ways. But the Bible does contemplate the idea of those people living amongst us who are not part of the dominant culture of the dominant ethnic group. New Testament, similarly, a little less specifically, but you get this same idea of having a heart for the marginalized, having a heart for those who are least able to help themselves. This is that judgment scene in Matthew 25 where separating the sheep and the goats, and all this is Jesus talking, Jesus speaking here, and he's talking about the idea that there is an accountability before God. And so he says to the ones who have done well, he said, listen, I was hungry and you fed me, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, you invited me in, you clothed me, I was sick and you looked after me, I was in prison, you visited me. And then people are going to say, wait, Jesus, we, we didn't do that for you. And he said, when you did it for the least of these helpless people, you effectively did it for me. That carries on a theme that runs all through the Bible. Now, we're not called to just treat people well who are marginalized in society, but you see God having a specific compassion and heart for those who are least able to help themselves. 
And typically, historically, this isn't always true, but typically, refugees and immigrants are easier to exploit. And so you'll see them specifically mentioned. So my first point is the Bible does teach us to care about this. God is not oblivious to this issue. He has an opinion, and that is the first thing we lead with is the idea of compassion for those who need help. So it's kind of a foundational idea in the scriptures. Second, let's move to the realm of governments. Governments and individual Christians both have God-given roles. That's something we talked about a couple of lessons ago. God's not oblivious to governments. They're instituted by God, not always approved by God, but the idea of government and that it has legitimate functions, remember those functions were to establish justice, to provide peace, to basically the way we talk about it is provide for the flourishing of its citizens. In other words, do good for its citizens. We read in Romans chapter 13 and 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and just in the New Testament about the role of government. Well, governments also have an obligation towards immigrants and refugees, and that is to deal justly with them. So I will come near to you. This is from Malachi, last book in the Old Testament. He said, I will be, this is God speaking, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who defraud laborers or their wages, in other words, those who sin against God and those who exploit the helpless, who oppress widows and orphans and deprive aliens of justice. Now, notice it does not say deprive aliens of entering your country necessarily. That's not the point I'm making here. I'm simply saying that both we as individuals are called to have compassion for those who are marginalized amongst those would-be those easy to exploit, like immigrants typically, and governments have a responsibility to do justice, not just to the people who are like them. They are called to do justice to all who live in their borders. You'll see that in the Old Testament, see that idea in the New Testament, in order to be a legitimate government and fulfill its God-given purposes. Governments must deal justly with immigrants and refugees. Governments, however, I realize I'm kind of moving through this pretty quickly, but I just want to give you some foundational ideas, and then we're going to see what your thoughts are, your questions are, and we're going to start to apply it. Governments have another obligation as well. Governments are responsible, and this is really an important idea, to provide for the security of its citizens and to preserve its society's way of life. Governments have a responsibility to deal justly with everyone, including those aliens or immigrants, uh, whatever language, however we want to translate that, who live in their borders. But they have a particular responsibility to provide for the security of their citizens. We had a question last week, is it okay for governments to protect their citizens? It's more than okay. It is part of their God-given mandate to provide justice, peace, to punish evildoers, the security of its citizens, and also preserving its society's way of life. The Bible actually embraces the idea, because this is God created, of diversity amongst humanity. And when I say that, what I mean is, God has not picked one race of people or one language of people and said, you're the ones going to heaven and I don't like anybody else. You have my image burned into you, and nobody else does. In other words, God has ordained the idea of different cultures. This is part of God's plan. 
A government, though, has the responsibility to preserve a society's way of life. That's a reasonable expectation of a government. So what governments tend to do is you tend to balance this I- these ideas, this idea of justice for all. I love that about America. We are committed. We don't always do it. I'm not saying this is a perfect country, more perfect than any other in the world. That's my bias. That's certainly my opinion. We're not perfect at it, but we're committed to the idea of justice for all. We'll talk about that in the next couple of sessions, uh, in fact. But the idea of justice for all, but also the idea of preserving the society's way of life. And when it comes to immigration in particular, and then certainly mass influxes of refugees, you see governments wrestle with this. Let me give you some statistics. This may surprise you a little bit. Over the last 50 years, there have been about 200 million immigrants in the world, meaning people migrating. So about, that's about 3% of the world's population has moved from one place to another. And I don't mean job transfers. We're talking about you know, fleeing or immigrating from one country to another for various reasons. This may shock you, though. Out of that, in the last 50 years, that 200 million, 30% of those immigrants have gone into Europe and 28% have gone into the United States. So between Europe and the United States, 50% of all immigrants have been going there. The United States, for example, is maybe 4 or 5% of the world's population. So hopefully this starts to give you an idea of the scale that immigration has been going on on a large scale, and predominantly, actually only about 28 countries have taken all of these, but Europe and the United States account for the largest portion. So the government of the United States, for example, is big time into immigration. This country has a lot of immigrants and has traditionally had a lot of immigrants. So that's one fact. Secondly, refugees, these are people fleeing persecution who are outside our country, and then people seeking asylum. Those are people inside our country who want to stay permanently for fear of something happening to them. About 70,000 of those in 2014. That's the last date that I could find statistics for. I believe it's the last date there are statistics. But 70,000 asylum seekers or refugees in 2014 in the United States. We're currently taking about 2,000, according to State Department spokesperson, about 2,000 Syrian refugees per month. That's not all refugees. That's just from the issue in Syria. And uh, as estimates are, we'll probably keep up that pace. So we're on pace for 25,000 or so per year from Syria. As far as immigrants, there are a huge number of legal immigrants who came into this country legally and are here legally. Illegal immigrants, those are people who are in this country who either came here or are here illegally, current estimates about 11.5 million. That is a lot of people here who are undocumented, who are here illegally. Now, if you want to think about this, this is not just an issue with our neighbor to the south, Mexico, although 59% of that group are Mexican, but that 41% are not. Not everyone comes here illegally. Many of those people came here legally on a visa, but did not leave. And so they are here illegally because they violated that. So there are different ways this happens, but we have about 11 and a half million people in America estimated that are here 
illegally. So what you see is the government trying to, and this is where we need to be an advocate for governments to fulfill their God-given purposes, wrestling with the idea of justice for those that are here, but protection of citizens and way of life, and particularly protecting a society's way of life. One of the best examples for us is to look at the European Union. European Union is a little farther down the road on a couple of uh, things than we are. For example, this is, uh, gives you a, a feel for the scale, roughly, of asylum seekers in the EU. And you see the troubled parts of the world, you see people fleeing, this is a refugees now, this isn't immigration, these are just refugees, special circumstances where there are crises. These are people being pushed in one form or another out of their countries. But you see just the huge volume of that, and Europe has basically been on the forefront of bringing a lot of those people into Europe. That's policy has been a way of balancing or an attempt to balance this idea of providing justice and caring for those immigrants and refugees in the world, and at the same time providing security and preserving the society's way of life. How is Europe doing on that? Well, they've tended to buy into the idea that more open borders and more compassionate acceptance of refugees, they tended to tip to that side. But here's the point, caring for immigrants and refugees does not necessarily mean open borders and unlimited access for refugees. That's a policy decision that a government might make. That is not the only way to care to show compassion for immigrants and for refugees. And I want to talk about a little bit different way of doing that in a few minutes. But for example, this is pretty fresh. This week, you notice that Angela Merkel, her party, uh, three parties right now in Germany, her party is the uh, Christian Democratic Union, CDU. There's also the uh, Social uh, Democrats, and then there's this new, more conservative, alternative German party. And so there were elections held in kind of her home state, if you want to think about it that way. And her party came in third. I mean, it's just a really sharp rebuke. Most people understanding this is a bit of a rebuke of the policies. And so this was uh, in CNN this week. Angela Merkel talking about immigration policy has hurt her policy. What's she basically saying? is that the government's choices of how to balance those competing interests have not been favorable with the citizens of that country. They believe that this is out of balance. There are two policies that Europe has typically followed that we can learn a lot from watching. The first is multiculturalism. Multiculturalism basically says when you come into our country, you may fundamentally preserve your culture. And I mean that in a fairly strong way. I don't mean it in a weak way, as in you can continue to you know, practice a lot of your customs and traditions and so forth, but it's a non-assimilation kind of an approach. It says you may continue to be an enclave of that country inside this country. I'm being a little inaccurate with this, but this is fundamentally how multiculturalism's played out. You see it in France, you see it a lot in Germany right now, where you have groups of people who are fundamentally living like they're just in another country. 
And you've seen in France, not too long ago, you saw a lot of clashes, violent clashes, between people from Muslim countries and France, which is a more secular state, that actually erupted into violence as France began to realize that it is a divisive force inside a nation to have people who do not buy into the same fundamental way of life. I'm not talking about giving up your religion or giving up some of your traditions, but fundamentally having people who do not buy into the way of that society. That's, that's really what you're seeing happening there, is the effects of this policy of multiculturalism, is not just celebrating your background, live your background, and don't assimilate into some of the norms of the society in which you come. That multiculturalism policy, I'm going to suggest to you, it's getting to be pretty obvious that that's been a very divisive force in the European nations. I think you're seeing them realize that as well. For example, uh, and these are just the ones in the news. These aren't the only examples, but you guys familiar with the idea? It's amazing this got in the news. Burkinis, recognize that? Burkas on, at the swimming pool. Okay. First of all, it seems like, are we really having this discussion? Yeah, we're really having this discussion. People are really passing laws about that. Uh, veils, head coverings. Why is this happening? Really, it's, it's more than just that specific little issue. I mean, really, if you just step back and you go, really, do I care if you wear a tent to the, to the beach? No, I don't. I mean... But there's more going on here. It's kind of this assimilation multiculturalism. It's this, this divisive, this tearing apart force in the cohesion of the society's way of life. What's fundamentally happening is governments realizing that they need to protect a society's way of life in some sense and assimilate people to some degree. The second thing is the idea of open borders. Is it's an assumption by the European governments, by and large, Britain, this is one of the reasons that the Brexit vote went the way it did. I mean, one of the factors was this idea of open borders in the EU jeopardizes, I mean, it's, it's obvious that it's had an effect on people's security. So the other function of government, providing security for its citizens, if borders are too open, you jeopardize security. And so Europe has seen far more incidents of violence. Now, don't read into this. I'm trying to, to become you know, just one or the other. Not everyone who comes in as a refugee is a terrorist. There are, by and large, far and away, the majority of people really need the help. You have to admire the compassion, the desire to help. The question becomes, as a matter of government policy, are these things effective? And this is where I think the biblical idea is going to drive us to more effective ways to help people. But this is what I think we see happening is governments in Europe trying to balance justice and compassion for all with the security of their citizens and their way of life. And I think that the, in my view anyway, as I read the headlines, it's coming down to no, not making a good policy choice there. I think there are lessons for us in America around that same idea. So, the idea of helping and being compassionate for immigrants and refugees does not necessarily imply open borders and unlimited access to refugees. And then, finally, I want to talk about this for just a second. I read an interesting article in the New York Times today, and it's so representative 
I'll tell you this before I get into that. Here's what this article was about. It was a great article about a young man in Marietta, Georgia. He's a Christian, goes to, I believe, a Baptist church. cannot now remember which one. And the story was about how he was helping some refugees learn English. So he was going over to their place and helping them. He just committing to them, embracing them. And so the New York Times headline was this, very interesting. Uh, the headline itself reveals the bias in this story, and I want to rebut that bias just a little bit. It said evangelical Christians are basically distancing themselves from the GOP by embracing refugees. And the, the implication in that title is that you have a number, by the way, Republican governors who are saying, listen, we do not think taking in refugees under current circumstances can preserve the security or the society's way of life. In other words, they're saying this is a bad policy decision. But because this young man is going to help these refugees, they see that as an either-or. In other words, do you follow your faith or do you follow the political ideology? Here's my contention. I think that's a complete misunderstanding. It's based on the idea of separation of church and state. You've got to either be in the state or you've got to be in the church. For those of us who are biblically informed or seek to be biblically informed, it is not a conflict of faith and politics to oppose open borders and to limit refugees, in other words, to make a different decision about what a legitimate government would do and simultaneously care for people that are here. Do you see what I'm saying? We do not think there's any real tension in those two things. The New York Times sees those as you've got either or. You can go embrace the refugees and help teach them English and help them, or you can be a Republican in this case. It happened to be a GOP issue. You could do the same thing with the, with the Dems. We do not see a difference in that. I'll give you a couple of great examples. One, Crossings has a clinic. When you come to Crossings Clinic, it doesn't make any difference about your status or your ethnicity or your religion or whatever. You're going to get treated. Uh, you know, the whole point is to treat people who don't have insurance, who cannot get treated. Treat all kinds of people, medical, dental, vision, in other words, it's a ministry of compassion. It's trying to fulfill compassion for those who are, at least in this case, helpless, not able to, to help themselves. So that's a normal thing that we would do. That would be like implying that the doctor or the nurse who are caring for that person must therefore be for open borders and unlimited refugees. That makes no sense whatsoever. In other words, we might, on the one hand, have an opinion about how the government ought to fulfill its godly duties and at the same time care for anyone who comes our way. That is not really a conflict for biblically-minded people, but it's seen as a conflict. I'll give you another story about this, and I this sounds like I'm bragging on some, some of our staff at our church, and I'm not. I just want you to understand that it's not an either-or line. It's not go into politics or go have your faith. These things run together. They have to run together. We had a, a family in uh, our church that regularly attends this church who are Iranian Christians who were facing a hearing who had applied for asylum. Basically, they were here, but they said it's about time for us to leave and we fear to go back. In other words, we have a legitimate fear that if we go back, bad things will happen to us. 
And so a couple of our staff members drove to the hearing and testified what they could legitimately testify about their involvement here in this church, about the seriousness of their claim. They're, I mean, it's up to the judge to decide and, and fortunately granted them asylum. And we were very pleased with that because we were convinced that that probably was a danger, but we could speak to that. Those are all of these things I'm giving to you. The, the young man in Marietta, Georgia, the clinic, this kind of thing is an example of Christians helping people under whatever circumstances. It does not exclude an opinion about the best way to go about fulfilling the government's God-given responsibilities. Uh, Russell Moore was quoted in this New York Times article, uh, Southern Baptist Convention talking about urging people uh, to bring refugees, people who have a need, into your church and into your home and care for them. Now, of course, the New York Times understood that as, wow, that's a break politically. It's not a break politically. Again, it's an, just another example of exercising the biblical teaching for compassion, but it does not imply that we don't also advocate the government fulfill its godly responsibility. That makes sense? So I'd like, I just wanted to walk through this a little bit because I think people want to draw a line and want to frame Christians into one camp or the other. But everything that we've just said are all biblical ideas. First of all, the Bible teaches us to have compassion for many groups of people, but tonight we're talking about immigrants and refugees, to have compassion, to help where we can help. The Bible calls for governments to deal justly with everyone who is in their country. Now, justice may be deporting someone. Justice may be putting someone in jail. Justice may be rescuing someone and giving them help when they need it. But what does justice look like? Governments also have a responsibility to their citizens for their security and for the preservation of their society. And so typically where you see the tension is in balancing these ideas. And that's where I think Christians can speak very well into this. The secular world wants to frame biblical ideas into a box and say, you must be one or the other. You care or you're against uh, immigrants, etc. That's not really the case. It's possible to advocate the government do its job and we as individuals exercise compassion. In other words, don't, don't allow ourselves to be framed into a very narrow box. Those are both consistent ideas with the biblical idea of the role of government and the biblical idea of Christians. I'll talk about uh, applications in just a second, but let me check to see first if we have uh, questions. We're going to build on those principles into a couple of applications in just a second. I have several questions about that. I think you're probably going to get to that, but the, the balance between... Uh, providing health care and welfare, aid for dependent children, things like that to refugees, while we're also still trying to care for our veterans and the people who are already here who are in need. Um, mm -hmm. does, does the government have an ob obligation to balance those things? Does the Bible give us examples for assimilation or non-assimilation and uh, for the idea of a wall or some kind of check on immigration? Yes, that's a good question. Let's talk about the idea of limiting immigration, even in biblical time. The Bible, this isn't the main topic of the Bible, but you see quite a bit of it. 
Yes, it has been true in biblical times that immigration was not unlimited then either. In other words, people couldn't just necessarily come in, camp out, and say, hey, there's a bunch of us here, and we decided we're going to plant ourselves here. That Governments, even in biblical times, exercised those same functions, providing for the security of their people and their way of life. When we go back to the law of Moses, you'll see that not only are they called to do justice for the sojourners, the aliens, uh, immigrants, or refugees, but they are also imposed certain obligations on immigrants and refugees in their, in their country. In other words, they were required to abide by certain portions of the law of Moses. They were not required to become Jewish. They were not required to fulfill you know, all of the commandments of the Old Testament, but they were basically required to assimilate and show respect for the dominant society. So yes, just without specific example, but you'll see that through the law of Moses, the idea of your sojourners need to participate in this. They need to respect this. Nowhere does it say they have to become a Jew or you kick them out. But there is the idea of protecting security and the idea of protecting the way of life. So you do see that example there. Good question. Does a Christian have um, a moral obligation to help someone who's here illegally? Do we have a moral obligation to turn them in to the government? Where, where does the obligation run as far as um, someone who is already here illegally? Yeah, let's talk about people that are here illegally. Our first obligation for anyone in our path, and this is just a theme that will run all through Christian, or all through the Bible, is help. Love. Love is the defining characteristic. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking sentimentalism. I'm not talking the kind of love that does whatever somebody wants them to do. Love sometimes turns people in. Love seeks the good of those who are in front of us. And sometimes that's, we call it tough love. It's just biblical love. And that is what builds up. So if somebody's hungry, somebody's thirsty, we meet that need. I mean, we're called to have that compassion. Now, are we also called to obey our laws? Yes, we are. But we are called to the first and highest standard, and that is of helping. I don't think you'll find very many Christians who would say, you're here illegally, so no, we won't treat your child's cough. That's, I mean, that's not who we are. And you're right if you think that way. On the other hand, there's nothing wrong with us advocating for we need to deal with well, take it out of this context of immigration, put it into crime for a second. Now, all of a sudden, it becomes a very easy thing. Criminal crawls up to your door bleeding. You go, sorry, you're a criminal. I'm going to call 911, and I hope you don't bleed to death. You're going to call 911, and you're going to put a bandage on. So in other words, Christians are called to compassion, but that doesn't mean ignoring the realities. And so there's where it gets a little trickier with immigration, and I'm going to talk about that in just a second. Um, and another part to that question would have been, is it, do we have a moral obligation to employ or not employ people illegally in the country? Yes, we're getting a little granular here, but let me speak to that on two sides. First of all, okay, I'm going to make an implication here, and if I offend you, I, I hope I don't offend you, but number one thing, we are definitely called you saw that through the scriptures, and they're far more than what I put up there, that we are not permitted to exploit people 
who are helpless. I want you to think about the plight for just a second of an immigrant who is here illegally. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to justify this. I just want us to engage our hearts here a little bit as well as our heads. If you're here illegally, it is so easy for you to be exploited. You cannot really go to the authorities if you're robbed or if you're beaten or if someone perpetuates a crime on you for fear of then being deported. And so people in that circumstance tend to suffer far more from injustice because they don't seek it. People who are here uh, illegally do not tend to be able to engage their physical needs as well for fear of, wow, if I walk into the hospital and then they realize I'm here, they'll report me. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying I want you to put yourself in that position. Think about having your children in that situation. I'm not justifying it. I'm just trying to get us to engage a little compassion as well. We are definitely called, those people are so easy to exploit. And you do see businesses and people exploit people knowing you can't do anything about it. That's not a biblical idea at all. Does that make sense? Not a biblical idea at all. Now, our laws say we're not to employ people in that circumstance. We should follow the law. And where you really see the injustice happening is people who will violate the law for personal gain to exploit somebody who can't do anything about it. And then you get both. Both these things are wrong. So the compelling idea there is, is we should, in general, follow our laws. But exploitation is something I think a lot about. I think that happens more than we realize. And that's not something that pleases God or is a biblical idea. Back to the idea of uh, balancing compassion with uh, enablement mm -hmm. in one way or another. There are people arriving on the shores of Greece in boats today that are not being turned back but don't have anywhere to go. There were people that came to the United States years ago on ships that were not allowed to come in. Mm -hmm. What is the biblical response to that? Do we have an obligation to let anyone in who arrives? Yeah, that's a great question. Just, just so we set our, calibrate this just a little bit. By the way, I, th I think I put a chart on your handout. Uh, I mainly just put that chart there because I thought you'd find it interesting. It's from the Pew Research Center, and their statistics are typically good. But the number one thing on there is the majority, far and away, think that our immigration policy needs work in a major way. Boy, that is really true. And I realize that's kind of a duh statement because people on both sides of the aisle would probably agree with that. It has not been very long ago that the United States was taking in Cuban immigrants, refugees, if you will, who washed up on our shore because Cuba was an enemy, was considered an oppressive government. We were sending back boats of Haitian refugees because they are an ally. Immigration policy has not always been very sane. Does that make sense? And so it has not traditionally been the policy that just because you wash up on our shores, you must then be accepted. And there are practical reasons for that as well. If you look at Europe, they've taken in, and I'm, I'm gonna, this is going to sound critical, but I just mean it to sound practical. You've got 7 million displaced people in Syria. Even Europe has taken in a small fraction of that. I'm going to argue that Syrian refugees need more than a sentimental response. We need to do something more effective than this. 
So I'm going to argue a little bit against this unlimited refugees because it's not practical. But the second thing is what you don't realize is if you think about, oh, they're taking in refugees. Well, I'd be more impressed if the people that want to take in refugees were taking them into their home. Yeah. Right? I mean, seriously, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but what's happening is you've got a lot of camps, a lot of refugee camps. Is that better than the threat of death in Syria? It may very well be, but they're still not good situations. Article not too long ago, I think this was an NPR where I heard it, but the French have a large camp in Calais. These are people wanting into Britain, and Britain's like, Nah, we'll screen them there and tell you whether they're coming in or not. And my, but my point, and the point of the article is France and Britain are arguing about that. But the side issue was those people are just living in big refugee camps. And so you've got to question the effectiveness of something that says just because people show up on your shore, you must take them in. That is not necessarily the most loving thing to do. It's not necessarily the most practical thing to do, either for your country or for them. So in general, I would suggest that because people wash up on the shore is not a good enough reason to deal with the problem in that way. I have a couple of things that are emerging as themes here. The idea that uh, immigrants to the United States or to Europe be able to work, the work ethic that's, in, that's a part of the Christian value system, and whether or not that's, that's a realistic goal, and I think that ties in with the camps question. Yeah, it does. In fact, we'll just go ahead and move into this application because I want to talk about this. This ties into that very well. When you think about, and let's focus for just a moment, uh, just as a test case, this, I'm not picking on this, but it's just an easy one, the 11.5 million illegal immigrants, residents in this country. Okay, this, you can apply this to a lot of places. You can either be, you've got really three rough choices here. Uh, you can either be in a camp somewhere, in other words, you're in an indeterminate status. You can't enter this society, but we're also going to feed you and take care of you at least to some extent. And you see a lot of Palestinians, by the way, have lived in camps all their lives, generations. Now, that hadn't the case yet with this, but that's a difficult situation to know how do you proceed. Is that a viable long-term solution to a refugee situation? Not very desirable. Second option is you can be in the country illegally and just stay below the radar. Hope you don't get arrested, you have no access, and you have a quality of life that makes it more easy for you to be exploited. That's kind of where we are on this particular issue in America. That's not particularly desirable either. We have a lot of tension about that. We have a lot of disagreement about how to handle that. Third option is and I'm, these are roughly three big options, is find a way to merge those people into your society or send them away. In other words, do what your law says, deport them, for example, or integrate them. That's probably a more effective choice for a government to tackle, is ignoring the problem doesn't seem to be working for us. Now, we don't happen to have camps here, but as you look in Europe, that's, refugee camps are not a particularly good solution. So then the question becomes either assimilate or deal with it. And that's where, by the way, that's going to skip forward. I'm going to show you this chart. This is very interesting because I think there's an opinion. Now, you may not be of this opinion, but I wanted you to see these statistics. Anyway, these are uh, about a year old, a little over a year old. But you'll notice that there's about 27% of Americans who would say we need to deport 
people who are here illegally. They broke the law. That's not an invalid or necessarily a heartless point of view. There's more logistics to it, but on a high level, that's a legitimate point of view. You see a lot higher percentage, however, and now this is cutting across. You'll see the percentages by party affiliation, but even so, it tends to cut across to say, let's find some way to assimilate at least some of those people within the constraints of preserving our society's way of life. And this gets to the idea of working. In other words, productive citizens who can contribute. And in some sense, I use the word assimilation, but what I mean is, is preserve the fabric of our society as well. And so you're starting to see a little bit of a consensus around how should we approach that. I'm not advocating it necessarily, but I thought you'd find those numbers interesting. I think it speaks to the compassion of Americans, but I think it also speaks to the balance. It's not just a blind compassion, let's just make everybody a citizen. That's not what you're seeing happening here. You're trying to find a constructive way to deal with this situation, which takes me back to an application. Here's a suggestion I'm going to make to you to think about how to deal with this situation. First of all, we need to deal justly with the illegal residents who are here. And when I say deal justly with them, that might mean deporting some of them. I suppose it could mean deporting all of them if we think that is just. But the point is justice should prevail. In other words, just because they're not citizens doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to have some compassion and some justice. People who have broken laws, there are immigrants here who are in the drug trade, in the sex trade, in gangs who are performing crimes. It may be that that group of people need to go to jail or need to leave here. There may be people who have come here for a better life who would very much like to work and be productive citizens. It may be that we have a different approach to that situation. In other words, justice is something that we need to think about. What is just in these situations? How do we best handle that? They're here. We need to deal with it. So let's deal justly with it. And I'd like you to think about what would that look like to deal justly with it. We need to control our borders to fulfill the government responsibility for security and for our protecting our way of life. Unlimited immigration has never worked for any country. We've never done it, and it's not, it's not a functional thing. So the government has a responsibility to manage immigration around those two mandates. Now think again. Immigration isn't just controlling people who are coming here for a better life. If you just think about our southern border, immigration affects the idea of drug trade and arms trade and sex trade. I mean, there's a lot of things coming across that border, not just people looking for a better life. That's a big part of it. Don't misunderstand me. But there are a lot of compelling reasons for government to do something to control its border. Does that mean build a wall? Maybe. Does that mean some other technique? Maybe. We might differ on our opinions about that, but I don't think that we can differ on the government's responsibility to fulfill those things. Otherwise, the first problem just gets worse. And then thirdly, let's advocate for effective ways to help those who are not here. And what I mean by that is bringing a bunch of people in and putting them in refugee camps is not necessarily the best way to deal with it. I would argue that probably one of the ways we need to really think about dealing with it is trying to do intervention where people are. Sometimes that means getting ahead of crises in the world. If you go back two lessons, I mean, my contention is a strong America is a stabilizing and peace-promoting force in the world. 
In other words, if we will use our power and influence, economic power, moral power in this world in a way that fulfills our God-given mandate to government, it can be a force to prevent a lot of these situations happening. Then we get ahead of the refugee crisis. When we get into a situation that has flared up, I would suggest that if we can solve the problem there, most people would rather live in their home than be homeless and possessionless in another place. Big picture, what does it look like? Here's my challenge for us. What does it look like to advocate for our government to use effective ways to compassionately help people in the most effective way to help them if they're not already here? I think that this is one of the applications. Deal justly with the people that are here. Let's reason together about that. How do we take our biblical compassion and the government's God-given responsibilities? What does justice look like in that situation? Let's advocate for that. Control our borders. That's a government's responsibility. Let's advocate for that. And then we care about more than just the United States. Can we and how can we help people in other parts of the world where they are? And I suggest that the best answer is typically not unlimited, hey, y'all come over here and live. It just is not practical if for no other reason. And then secondly, I'll give you a little voting guide. I'm going to give you some suggestions. We're going to do this every week from now on. One is to prioritize issues. Because if you remember the first slide, this is an election in which I'm going to suggest that no one aligns 100% with any of the candidates. Now, that's probably an exaggeration. There probably are a few people that do. But typically, what we've seen, what the polls show is, it's getting harder to align with even a party, certainly with a candidate. What do Christians do in that situation? Well, I've got several suggestions, but the first one tonight is this. We need to prioritize issues. What are the issues that we think will most impact the world in a godly way, most impact our country in a godly way? And as we go through these issues, I'd suggest we start thinking through what are the things that are most important? Because there's no question that you cannot get a godly answer to every one of these. And I don't mean that as a criticism of the candidates. It simply isn't the way our political system works. We need to begin to prioritize our issues. We need to align on issues rather than endorsing a platform. I think if you read the Democratic Party platform, which I have, that's very interesting, and if you read the Republican Party platform, which is also very interesting, you're probably going to identify more closely with one than the other, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say you are not going to find, as you think biblically about it, that either are perfect. And so start thinking about the issues you think will have the most important impact on our nation, because I think we're in an era where we're going to align more on issues rather than platforms. Okay? So, question or two, and then we'll send you out with your charge. I have almost a whole page here of people who want you to run for president. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's easier to tell you what I think we need to do than to get it done. I think that might be a disaster, okay? I would not be one of those people. (laughs) You would not be one of those people. What we're trying to do here is to get us to think biblically. Here's my suggestion to you, or this is what I'm going to maintain, is the Bible is going to inform our thinking about all of the issues of the day. And we as Christians may have some sincere differences of opinion about some things, and we we could be in this area. One might 
we might rationally and calmly talk it over and say, I think that we should deal with our illegal immigrant problem in this way. And others would say, I understand that and I agree with this piece, but I see it a little differently here. I think we can, we can have some differences of opinion of how we best, how government best implements its God-given thing. I do not think we can be here. I think if we are this far apart, we're probably allowing the right or the left or something else to inform us more than we are informing it. And so the challenge is to think about on this immigration and refugee issue is, how do we deal justly with the people that are here? How do we advocate for the government to fulfill its obligation to control our borders, to provide security and protecting our basic fundamental way of life? And then thirdly, how do we advocate for practical and effective ways to care and really help people who are in difficulty in the world? And that's, I think, our challenge as Christians, is to go take that into the public square. And I think the public square desperately needs the voice of Christians bringing that perspective. Okay? That's your assignment. Think about that this week. And next time, I want to change track just a little bit and start moving to some social issues. The politics of poverty. If you remember Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, I want to go back and look at that. Some profoundly positive things, good things, biblically important things came out of that, and some profoundly oppressive things came out of that. So let's talk about the politics of poverty. How should we help the poor? Poverty, welfare, wealth redistribution, oh, and a health care system. That's what we're going to talk about next time. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>